0: Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis, and our next guest is the third candidate in our series of interviews of those running for mayor of Burlington. We started with progressive Emma Mulvaney Stanek, continued with City Council President Karen Paul, and now Joan Shannon, a longtime member of the City Council, a former president of the City Council, uh, a Democrat who hopes to secure the party nomination at a caucus in December. Joan Shannon, we have never met, but welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me on. You gave me a moment of panic a little, a few minutes ago. <laughs> I'm glad to be
0: here. <laughs> yeah. Technical difficulties. My apologies. Uh, <laughs> I, su- I suppose we must start uh, with the shooting that we're all uh, talking about. I just spent 45 minutes interviewing Sarah George, the prosecutor, uh, and I summarized the the latest news at the top of the show. I just read a statement from one of the victims who uh, which was issued through one of his organizations at Brown University in which he urges us all to see that his shooting is part of a much larger situation going on uh in his home in Palestine uh, what what was your first reaction when you heard about the shooting
1: i mean, it was just horrifying i um I think I first heard about the shooting really not having any information, just initially, um, that three people were shot and the location very close to UVM. Um, shortly thereafter, I got a text from a family member from the ER telling me, you know, that it was their family, which was just stunning and heartbreaking. And, you know, it does, um, it literally just brings it home. Um, sometimes we read about these things um, in the press or social media or whatever. the The connection was just so real and personal when I got that text. So, as far as you know, what the greater meaning is, I, I don't. Um, you know, I, I may not have the. Uh, hour by hour updated information, but the information that I've had, we don't exactly know what, what was the motivation behind this crime. And we don't know which of our societal failings buckets this falls into. You know, was this a mental health illness? Was it a, um, you know, was it a hate crime? Um, information we have is that, uh, this man was, a Unitarian. Um, (laughs) So I I don't really know what the motivation behind it is, but I think that we certainly have um, many societal ills, including polarization and hate, that's having very serious and deadly impacts on our community.
0: It is so difficult. For, you know, when people in your line of of public service, uh, it it must be difficult because you you issue statements uh, from from the governor on down and everyone expresses support and are heartbroken and et cetera, et cetera. And it it always seems to fall short uh, because you can't take immediate action to fix your community. Uh, So it's some at some level, all you have is thoughts and prayers because you can't take all the guns away from people and you can't fix mental health and you can't fix drug drug abuse uh, overnight. So given that, tell us, uh, I know you, I've read your public safety plan. Uh, why don't you sort of pivot to what you would do about all of this as mayor?
1: <laughs> well, I think we have to recognize that um, we're we're a city and we have we're a city of 44,000 people. Uh there are limitations as to what the city can do and what's within our control and to get at the root causes of these problems, we need um, we really need our state partners to step up. We need our federal delegation um, to help us out. Because what I see really as the root cause of all of this is um, is mental health. And I think it's also worth questioning, why do we have such a mental health crisis in this country? I spent my Thanksgiving um, with people from Eritrea, Ethiopia, Niger, Pakistan, and Turkey. And we talked about this at the Thanksgiving table, and talked about how, um, in their countries, they're not seeing these problems. They're not seeing the drugs, of course, um, but also the family relationships and how um, how families hold one another accountable. But also that mental health is is um, often you know people don't seem to be having the mental health crises that they are in this country. Now, when they do, I wonder how they're treated there. I'm not sure. But um, in Vermont, my experience with the mental health system is that it's not a health mental health system. It's a patchwork of services and it's extraordinarily difficult to access um, for almost anybody. And uh, people are self-medicating on our streets that's part of the substance use disorder problem. People are, have been over-prescribed by healthcare providers. Um, there are a lot of different reasons for what we're seeing, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, people do have to be held accountable for their actions, so we need to treat both ends of this pipeline. We need to treat the root causes with mental health care, um, with treatment for substance use disorder, with better physical health care systems and with housing, we also need to treat treat the outfall pipe, which we're experiencing in Burlington, where people are exhibiting behaviors that are dangerous and they need to be they cannot just be left on their own. That is not permissiveness is not kindness. Um, people often can get help when there is legal intervention, and they get housing. I mean, I think we should remember that. Um, You know, that that, uh, mental health care facilities, treatment centers and prisons all provide housing to people. And those are, uh, you know, being in a locked facility isn't your first choice, but some people need that in order to get well. So I believe that we need to address all levels of the problem.
0: Why do you want to be mayor?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) I (laughs) want to be mayor because I think that we need leadership in this city that's been hard to come by. Um, I think that we need somebody who's going to be kind of an earnest truth teller, um, not necessarily telling people just what they want to hear. Who can stand against um, political wins as we saw in 2020 um, and do what's right for the city. Our city needs a lot of help and my approach to that, you know, my my campaign slogan has been uh, all hands on deck, but it really is more than a slogan. It is how I envision governance. I think we need everybody's help to get through this. You know, we need volunteers in the community We need um, the expertise that we have in the community to find our path forward, and we need those partners at the state and federal level to bring everyone together. And I think that that is something I have demonstrated in the course of my career. Um, I have a demonstrated ability to do that.
0: Um, When you talk about uh, new leadership, I I take that as a Something of an implied criticism of either Mayor uh, Moreau Weinberger or the Burlington City Council is. Can you? I know that you were critical of the council with its handling of the police department, but why don't we start with the mayor? Do, are you? A, have you been? And are you still a supporter of Mayor Weinberger?
1: I, um, I have supported the mayor, um, and I have also, um. Stood against the mayor on certain issues. <laughs> I don't put people kind of in the good bucket or the bad bucket. And I, I try not to um, just go along with what political allies want to do. And so I think the mayor and I have had a very good relationship and an understanding of that. Um, I think the mayor came in with a promise to write our financial ship. And he's done uh, a good job of that. That was the crisis of the moment 12 years ago. The crisis of this moment is a public safety crisis. And that will be my focus. And that is, I, you know, if if actually, in you know, 12 years ago, when it was a financial crisis that we were facing, I was considering running at that time. And I looked at what the mayor had to offer, and I thought he was the right person for the job. And I am... Never had regrets uh, about supporting him and think he navigated that very well. But the crisis of this moment, I think I'm in a better position to handle. Um, there are some things I would do differently, and there are certain things where, you know, the city council really dealt the mayor a bad hand. Um, you need both a, 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 a reasonable council um, and a mayor to get the job accomplished. And I think it will be very difficult for the next mayor if they don't have a a council that is at least somewhat like-minded.
0: Joan, I wonder if you could give us the headline on your public safety plan.
1: The headline of my public safety plan is that it's a combination of accountability and care, and the four pillars of the plan are, um, first, deterrence and prevention, second, treatment, third, housing, and fourth, justice.
0: Um, so that's a headline.
1: <laughs> you want more than a headline?
0: <laughs> sure. Yes, that's that's good. Now the question is uh, resources. Uh, what do you change to, to implement that? What what do you change from what's currently being done? And how do you do you have to raise additional funds to get the resources where they need to go?
1: Well, I think that one of the challenges we we've had a lot of funds coming from the federal government for for COVID that are drying up. So that's concerning. Um one of the reasons why I note that we do need our federal delegation to partner with us um make sure that we are getting the funds that we need um in the areas particularly of prevention, mental health care, um treatment, and um, also also housing. You know, we need, it. as part of that, we need housing at all levels. You know, you need the beds for people who need intensive care. You also need transitional housing, supportive housing. As people transition out of a mental health care facility, um, a treatment center, incarceration, or even the hospital for physical care, oftentimes you need kind of supportive housing on your way into um, either market housing or uh, subsidized affordable housing. So, yes, we, need, um, we do need subsidies for all of that. But those are largely state systems. And I think that we need to, as a city, we need to partner with other cities in Vermont, and we're facing the same problems that we are to get, to get the attention where we need and to get more of a systemic approach to our problem. Um, In terms of city resources, um, I do think we need to, you know, our, our police department is still um, terribly understaffed. Uh, We had um, at our peak, we had 105 officers. We didn't have, 105 for very long <laughs> but because um, it's always been hard to hire police officers. We have very high standards for our police officers in Burlington and before that fateful 2020 vote to decrease the number of police officers we probably had more officers with um master's degrees and really uh, a progressive leaning in policing. We had an excellent police force and We want to continue to keep those very high standards, but we have gone from a peak of 105 officers to now less than 70. Um, The cap was set at 74, but in addition to the cap, we weren't even allowed to start the hiring process until we went below the cap, and it's a 12- to 18-month hiring process. So this is a very deep hole that we're trying to dig ourselves out of. Um, And we do need to look at uh, what are all of the things that we can do. We have a labor shortage, a national labor shortage, um, compounded by a national policing shortage that's even more than that, and a city that has not positioned itself well to hire police officers. So we need to turn that around, and that does require somewhat of a culture change here.
0: Yes, you were you've been very vocal about the, the fact that you opposed uh shrinking the Burlington Police Department. Have they has the department or its union uh made an endorsement in this race yet?
1: Yes, uh the union did endorse me um just yesterday actually. I got the endorsement of the police union, which I'm very proud of. Um and I think it makes it clear. I think that this election is somewhat a referendum on what we expect out of public safety. Um, I have not been one to mince my words, honestly. (laughs) And I say that also with great compassion for the suffering that we see on the streets. I want people to get help, but I'm also hearing from our most vulnerable population, that they, too, want policing because they're being victimized on our streets. You know, I hear well, stories from people who have had their shoes stolen from them as they have been, um, you know, sleeping on the streets of Burlington.
0: Yeah, yeah, it. it It is very difficult. I hear stories all the time about people of all walks of life who refuse to walk through City Hall Park. Mm Mm-hmm. I walk through City Hall Park, uh, but... (laughs) As as do I. And uh, at night or day, and I'm a proud visitor to Burlington. I live in East Montpelier, but uh, it, it... when that perception uh, embeds itself out in the in Vermont and the rest of the country, uh, boy, that's a tough thing to turn around. And I don't envy your task, but uh, you're it running for it. It is a tough it.
1: thing to turn around, and um, you know, I I don't have the silver bullet, but I think I have the focus and the strong will to do hard things and to bring people along with that and to bring the experts to the table. Um, there isn't anybody who can do this alone. Uh, so we need to, um, we need to rally as a community.
0: Uh, I want to ask you also a personal question that I ask of all candidates, male or female or other. And that is, uh, it's a huge job. Uh, we just talked to Sarah George for 45 minutes about social media and the uh, the attacks that she sustains on a regular basis that threaten her safety. Uh, you have a family. Uh, you're running for this office. It is an all-encompassing job. How do you balance? How do you get that job done and then just go be a human being as a as a spouse or a parent or a friend or whatever. Uh it's a it's a big life change, is it not?
1: Probably not for me <laughs> because <laughs> I have um I've already had a die-in at my house with a couple hundred people including my own daughter's peers that were, yeah. you know, yelling things through a megaphone about um all kinds of things. I, I never could understand, like, how do people get through that? And having gone through it, I now know. Because they're yelling things through a megaphone that I know in the core of my being are not true. You know, yelling that I am, you know, that Joan's a racist, that Joan doesn't care about poor people, that my whole neighborhood is elitist. I mean, I live in a low income neighborhood. And, um, I know that at the core of my being, I know what's the truth about me. And that is how how I get through that is that I don't let other people define me. And I have been very surprised that when so much hate was coming at me, it produced um, an equal and even greater amount of love and appreciation. People who never really probably paid much attention to me, and honestly, I'm more introverted than people realize, um, uh, people just really came out of the woodwork in support, and that uh, that really made a difference for me To that people saw me. I, I actually felt it's hard to understand how I could feel seen in that environment. But people did and they appreciated that I stood for something. And it wasn't just that singular event. There were other things that happened. I got phone bombed at a city council meeting because they did, the protesters did not like the position that I had taken against a charter change, um, that would create a board that was designed to be biased against the police that would be in charge of police discipline. And I was trying to speak against that, and it was when we were all on Zoom. And um, due to some unfortunate connections between my phone and my computer, they were preventing me from speaking. Um, And there were other things, too. But through it all, um, I've now gotten through that, and I feel like, okay, I... I get what goes with this job and I'm ready to, I'm ready for that. Um, I've been tested more than anyone else around, you know, the mayor, the mayor too has experienced everything that I have experienced, I would say. Um, So it's really, we've been tested and I've come through that. And I hope I don't have to go through that again, but if I do, (laughs) I, I have no regrets.
0: Uh, Last question in the 30 seconds we have left. When is the caucus and what does it take for you to win at that caucus? Uh,
1: The caucus is December 10th and people have to be registered for the Democratic caucus December 9th. Any Burlington uh, voter is uh, who hasn't voted in another caucus is eligible to vote. What it takes for me to win is for people to show up and vote. People don't feel obligated to vote in a caucus the way they feel obligated to vote at an election. So really, I just need people to register. You can go to my website, joanformayor.com. You can register through the website, read my public safety plan, um, and get more information. Contact me through that website, which again is Mayor all spelled out, dot com.
0: Joan Shannon, candidate for mayor of Burlington, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and best of luck.
1: Thank you for the opportunity, Kevin.
0: It's Kevin Ellis, Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll be right back with short takes about books right after this. You're listening to WDEV. I am back, and it's the best part of the show where we get to talk about books. Uh, And as always, we're joined for our short takes series with our friend and guest, Mary Bisbee Beek from Portland, Oregon. Mary, welcome back.
2: Hi, Kevin. It's good to be back.
0: Okay, so uh, I'm telling the audience now that I'm taking a couple of weeks off uh, for a cross-country driving trip. So we're looking for some books and inspiration uh, from you. So I'm turning it over to you. Take us through the books.
2: Okay, gee, I wish I had thought more about this because I would have just given over the whole few minutes to audiobooks. But unfortunately, <laughs> I wasn't on top of my game when you mentioned that you were taking a driving trip. Um, okay, we're keeping so, it
0: secret, we're keeping it top secret. We we haven't okay. uh, re- we haven't revealed our plans widely except uh, now on the on worldwide radio.
2: Yeah, I think this story's out of the bag. <laughs> anyway, um this last weekend we had uh 4 days off. And um, what better time to decide to go through your bookcases and see what you could comb out and make room for the new books that were sitting on the dining room table um, to the point where we couldn't eat there anymore. There were so many books. Um, so I uh found this. I was at this one shelf and I was pulling books out and I found this whole other shelf of books behind the first shelf. So it was um, – it was a little bonanza and one of the books that popped out was called Leica's Window, The Legacy of a Soviet Space Dog, um, by Kurt Caswell. And Leica began her life as a stray dog on the streets of Moscow. And she died in nineteen fifty seven aboard the Soviet satellite Sputnik two. And she was known as the Mutnik. Um Laika's window positions Leica as one of the first animals in space and the first to orbit the Earth as a long overdue hero for providing the gateway to human space exploration. It's a really charming book and I would heartily recommend it um for people who are interested in space or just interested in that period of history. So, um
0: Mary, uh, did is that a is that a nonfiction book?
2: It is. It is. Wow! It's from Trinity University Press, and I believe they commissioned Kurt to write the book, um, and he did a ton of research. And the acknowledgments at the back of the book are really interesting, from the number of scientists that he checked in with about about the book and about the subject matter. So it's it's well worth taking a look at, or at least trying to find. And I think I think the bookstore could probably order it. Um, I don't know that they'll have it in stock. A used bookstore might have it. Public libraries should definitely have it. So there are lots of options. And I bet you could even
0: find it on uh, online
2: if that's how you purchase your books.
0: Okay. Well, we don't do that here. We, we, uh, we go right to the bookstore, whether it's Powell's Out Your Way or Bear Pond Books or Bridgeside Books here in Waterbury.
2: <laughs> that's good. That's music to my ears.
0: Right. Okay.
2: What's so, next? yeah, the second book I ran across was is actually not my book, and it's a book that I need to return to my friend Jacqueline, um, who brought it to me last year when I was I was going through some health issues, and she brought me a a big basket of food, um, wonderful food. She's a fabulous cook, and this book which she said, um, she made it very clear, this is a loan. I want this book back. I must have this book back. Mm-hmm. And it's called 100 Demons by um, the cartoonist Linda Berry. And I don't know, I think a lot of people know Linda Berry. I first ran into Linda Berry in 1985, where I walked into an office for an interview, and there was a poster on the wall, and it was an illustration of a poodle with a mohawk. And that's what it was entitled. And I thought it was completely brilliant and made me laugh and relaxed me for the interview. Um, Anyway, this book is called 100 Demons. And um, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. And then I opened to the table of contents and there were um, subjects like head lice and my worst boyfriend, dancing, resilience, my first job and dogs. And it just got better. These were just the tip of the iceberg. So it's well worth searching for anything by Linda Barry. She's a national treasure. Um, and her instructions at the end of the introduction are, she hopes you will dig these demons and then pick up a paintbrush and paint your own. So she's all about bringing art to people. And if Jacqueline, if you are listening by any stretch of the imagination, I haven't forgotten. And I know you want me to return this book. It was just a temporary loan.
0: Can you can you actually talk talk about demons the the act of borrowing a book or lending a book uh to those of us who are obsessed with books uh inspires a certain kind of terror, does it not?
2: It does. I I don't loan books easily, and the ones that I loan, I feel like I may never see them again. Um and for two reasons, one is I maybe forgot who I loaned it to um or the person might just completely forget about it. I once got a book back from two people removed from the person that I had loaned it to because uh she liked it so much that she loaned it to a person who then loaned it to another person who then had the the um the for- forethought to bring it back to me. So, so that was yeah. a particular bonus.
0: Yeah, but I think you know, it can destroy year, friendships.
2: Yeah, after a year, you pretty much don't. You don't anticipate seeing it again if you haven't seen it yet.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, number three on your list.
2: Number three is written actually by. It's a memoir, and it's by um, a woman who lives in New Hampshire and who used to live in Vermont. Uh, her name is Janet Pokoroba and uh, her book is called The Fourth String A Memoir of Sensi and Me um, and it's about her time in Japan um, and her Sensi was um, a musician who taught foreigners in who were living in Japan but she taught them in English and what she was teaching was um, a three-stringed instrument called a shamisen and it's pretty much it's almost impossible to play because apparently as soon as you pick it up to play it, it falls out of tune. Um, And it's uh, Janet was completely vexed by the music and also her sensei's mission to upend an elite musical system. Um, At one point, Janet gave up her return ticket back to the U S to become what she thought was going to be a lifelong student to her teacher but eventually she did come home it's part memoir part biography of her teacher and it looks back on the initial years of her apprenticeship it's a very personal story and it's i found it a very rich reading experience and important for anyone who's had a special teacher or who who has traveled and lost themselves in another world i highly recommend this book
0: Boy, you find these real finds on your own bookshelves. Your 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 bookshelf uh, at your home must be. Oh, I don't know. It's like going through the the wardrobe in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit like that, <laughs> but you have to be careful because you can get lost. You know, you start out to clean something up, and then you, before you know it, you're sitting down and you're you know kind of rereading pieces of of books that you find. And one of my missions was to pull books that I could donate and to give to people during the holidays. And that pile is very, very thin. It's very hard to give them up.
0: Yeah. Mary, what's what's the fourth and last option?
2: The last option is actually a really handy book for the holidays. And it's one that my husband brought home the other day. And it's an invitation to Indian cooking, and it's the 50th anniversary edition by Madhar Jafri. And it has a wonderful forward by Yotam Ottolongi, who is a wonderful Israeli chef in London and has many books himself. Um, she starts the book out by, or he starts his forward out by talking about, uh, or asking the question do you remember the first time you had indian food or cooked indian food and i've only started cooking indian food recently so um but i've been eating it for a long time um it's a, a magnificent cuisine it's not difficult to cook from um a lot of spices a lot of chopping um and your house always smells incredibly wonderful when you when you decide to cook Indian food, one of the pieces that I love about this is that the, the book has been designed exactly as the first book was um, so that you you get a sense of the history of it. It has her illustrations, Mother Joffrey's own illustrations. Um, they've added sample menus to the beginning of the book so that you have a whole menu that you can cook from. Um, from starters to third. Um, I've discovered that they're not terribly challenging. Um, Some of them are, but um, they're all very, very tasty. And I would highly recommend this if you're going to have family or friends uh, running through the house during the holidays.
0: Well, Um, well, it's it's funny. I'm, I'm not an Indian food guy, but I, I saw in this morning's New York Times, or was it yesterday in the food section, a feature on on this author. And um, so, boy, 50 years. Wow. I think that's one that I'm going to have to buy as a gift for someone.
2: Yeah. And when a few years ago, we were in New York right around this time of year, and we went to uh, her restaurant on the Upper East Side. And it was a Monday night. and It was pretty quiet. And we were there with a friend, and um, I, I noticed that during the conversation, my husband wasn't paying very good attention to what our friend was talking about. And I sort of kicked him under the table, and he he was moving his head. And he wanted wanted me to look to the left. And there was John Harrison, um, George Harrison, talking to um, the major d'. And then um, we looked into another part of the restaurant, and there was Steve Martin eating with a bunch of friends, and on the way out, I saw John Cusack, and I said to the maitre d' as he was saying goodnight to us, is it like this every night? And he said, oh, no, no, madam, this is a particularly good night. (laughs) So we got some stars and excellent food. Um, So I hope that everyone has a good holiday and um, do some good cooking, do some good reading, um get outside to have some fun with the kids and the family and um i'll be back hopefully in 2024 um with more short takes and i'm always happy if uh people want to email in with the with ideas of their own books that would be something fun to add in 2024 um so uh i hope i hope we're all in sync pretty soon and um we'll keep going here Okay. Thanks so, so much, uh,
0: uh, Mary. I'm back, and I'm. I had a little technical. I think the phone call dropped off, but I have a recommendation for people, if you will uh, abide it. Are you? Can you? I stand would love by it. And, Okay. So, here's the story. I'm in Washington, D.C., and whenever I'm here, I love to go to the Lincoln Memorial and read the Gettysburg Address and just listen to the silence of. Lincoln uh, brooding in his chair. And they're uh, doing exactly the same thing with the famous uh, blogger, newsletter writer, and professor at Boston College, Heather Cox Richardson. And uh, I get accused of being too social by some people. And of course, I knew exactly who she was from watching her on YouTube and elsewhere. And I sidled over to her quietly and said, do you come here often? (laughs) And she says, as a matter of fact, I, as a matter of fact, I do. And we talked for a good 15 minutes about her latest book, Democracy Awakening Notes on the State of America. Uh, It is, it is her latest work on, on where we are in our current political environment. Um, You know, I think there's two kinds of folks right there's the folks who avoid the politics of where we are in our environment and and uh junkies like me who sort of just dive deeper and deeper uh and this this book democracy awakening it's uh it's it's really good and it's optimistic about where we're going and how we can come out of this uh this tribal hatred that we've all I don't know fallen into and So anyway, I would recommend that in addition to your four choices.
2: Well, I think that's terrific. And, you know, I just read, um, I think it was on Monday, that um, the Biden family were in Delaware. No, they were in Nantucket for Thanksgiving. And they went into the bookstore and um, the president bought Heather's book. And that was the book he took away from his holiday weekend. So that was perfect timing, Kevin.
0: There you go. Okay. Well, that is short takes uh, for this month, and we look forward to having Mary back after the first of the year. Mary Bisbee Beek, the publishing Sherpa. You can find her online, and uh, just Google her. And if you're uh, writing a book or need help with a book, uh, hit her up, and she's she's our exclusive guest once a month yeah. on the show, and we're grateful grateful to have you. Thank you, Mary, and. Uh, have a happy Christmas, happy holidays, and we'll see you uh, maybe when I get out west. Okay, terrific. I'll be here. Okay. Mary, Bis- Mary Bisbee Beak. That's Short Takes. And uh, we, boy, I'll tell you, those are great books. That Yeah, you check out your New York Times, I believe, today or yesterday. I think it's yesterday. That book, An Invitation to Indian Cooking, The 50th anniversary edition. I've never been to that restaurant on the Upper East Side. The author is Madhur Jaffrey, and she is a uh, renowned, -renowned, world-renowned Indian uh, chef, and uh, I think that's a great, great gift for either the skilled Indian cook or somebody like me who's just starting out. So, that's yeah, check out that story in the New York Times. Boy, that's a great restaurant to go to. Um, My thanks to Mary as always. So that's our show. A couple of housekeeping notes. So as I said earlier, I'm going to be gone uh, for a couple of weeks and I hate to do it, uh, but we're driving cross country um, and uh, we've always wanted to do it. We've done it before, but we're going to take a different route. uh, And Uh, Try as I might to do the show from the front or back seat of my car. I just think with cell reception, that would be a little too difficult. But I'm not going for long, and I will be back. So rest assured, I will be back on Wednesdays and Fridays, as always. Um, But uh, I'll take notes along the way, and uh, I'll be sure to share details of the trip with everybody on the show when I get back. Uh, please send me your emails for suggestions for where we should stop. I think we're going to hit Charleston, West Virginia, and then we'll go through Kentucky, uh, maybe a little Arkansas, but Kentucky, Oklahoma, and we've done the Southern route. So we're going to go kind of a little bit Southern, but a little, try to stay warm along the way. So, uh, please send me your emails with suggestions about where to eat, especially in the middle of the country, uh, I can't eat barbecue the entire time. So uh, we're trying to keep it as healthy as we can. That's our show. My thanks to Mary Bisbee Beek, Joan Shannon, and Sarah George. We took on some really heavy issues there. and uh, But we're going to get through this shooting and come out uh, as a better people, I hope. I'm always looking for guests who will provoke us, inform us, and challenge us. So please send me your suggestions. You can hit me up on Twitter, email, VTViewpoint at RadioVermont.com. Our goal is to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. Remember, you can stream the show live or listen later as a podcast at WDEVradio.com, anytime, anywhere. As always on this show, we'll talk politics, media, and culture, and everything else on my mind and yours. When I get out to California, I'm going to be doing the show from a, 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 a fellow uh, community radio station out there in Point Reyes Station uh, in uh, in California. They've got a little radio show, and they've agreed to let me use one of their studios. So I look forward to that. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays, although, I, as I said, I'm taking a couple of weeks off. So hang in there with my substitutes, whoever they will be. You can find me at kevinkellis.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Conflict of Interest, or my podcast of the same name. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Danny McGivrigan, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, and today, a little bit of Steve Cormier and all the folks at WDEV. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here as soon as I get back. I'll be listening when I'm not here. And it's Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on Ken Squire's Friendly Pioneer. WDEV.